Welcome to the Refuge Weekly Podcast. We are a church in and for the city of Orange in Southern California. The heart of Refuge OC is to introduce and reintroduce people to a clearer vision of God. To learn more about us and how you can get involved, please visit us at refugeoc.com. And now, here is our latest message. alum, so my heart starts there and uh, moves its way through Christian higher ed. Shout out to my uh, friends in Springfield at Evangel University. Uh, we just we, we get around to as many Christian universities we, as we can in our, <laughs> in our space, but it, it is the greatest gift of our lives. Uh, I think I can speak for my husband when I say this, to be part of this community. Um, I'm so happy to see Kim and Craig this morning. It's been a long time since we've had opportunity to be together with your move and other things going on. It's just, I was so happy when I turned around and saw you both. So my heart is just leaping to see all of you here this morning. And some of you are online this morning because you're vacationing places. Uh, I got to be honest, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a, in a different space than Nettie. I know she's trying to get warm and she's super excited about 80 degrees, but I put on the, 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 the warm weather stuff or cool weather stuff today because I'm so ready for fall and, and for the change of the seasons. I don't know if I'll ever assimilate uh, to California in quite that way. Um, but uh, so, so I dress at least like the way I want it to be instead of, <laughs> instead of the way that it is. I have, um, I've shared some of this with you before, but I want to take it a, a little bit deeper. I, I grew up in Pentecostalism. I'm a fourth generation AG girl. I'm married to a fourth generation AG boy, and we are raising a fifth generation of AG kids, right? Uh, but I was born in 1976. You can do the math on that. I'm a bicentennial baby, fully raised and grown in evangelical Pentecostal subculture of the 80s. I'm it. We listened to a little Petra praise on the way in this morning. Um, we, we pull up the 80s anytime we get a chance uh, to do that. But one of the things that happened when you were a child of the 80s, and now you got to understand, I, I come from from kind of the holiness tradition of, of Pentecostalism, where, where we were kind of known a little bit more for what we didn't do than what we did do. We didn't smoke, we didn't drink, we didn't chew, we didn't go with girls who do, we didn't play cards, we didn't play games, we didn't dance, and we certainly did not go to movies. Now, my husband will say to me oftentimes, hey, remember that movie? And then he's like, oh, yeah, right. And I'm like, no, I was raised in the Assemblies of God. We didn't do those things. Uh, he's an AG pastor's kid. Um, and they got to do those things. We didn't do those things. So different branches of the stream didn't, didn't do different things. And it wasn't movies themselves that were necessarily so bad. It was, it was the theater, because theaters were dark places, and you never know what can happen in the dark, so you didn't go to those places. But once a year, at least, sometimes twice a year, we would roll out the film projector machine and take the screen and put it up. Screens didn't come down in those days. You had to put them up. And on a Sunday night, we would have movie night at church. Because again, it wasn't about the movies. It was about the theater. And so we would show a movie. And that movie was called A Thief in the Night. I think we have the, the, the yes, there it is. A Thief in the Night was the story of the rapture. This is 
pre-left behind, okay? So it was the story of a woman whose husband gets taken in the rapture and she's left. And it's full of all kinds of lovely one world communist socialist governments taking things over. And if you didn't get the mark of the beast, you were subject to the guillotine. And there were lovely images of guillotines going up and down. Now, as a small child, I wasn't allowed to watch Cinderella in the theater, but I could watch people getting guillotined in church on a Sunday night. It was fear-based. It was literally meant to scare the hell out of you. And it did that for most of us over and over and over again. Every time we watched the film, we would run to those altars just to make sure that we were okay, that we were safe. But you see, this approach to things focused solely on our outward behavior. It was not about the conditions of our hearts. It was not about the way we loved our neighbor. It was not about the way that we cared about whether or not the people in our community were coming into our church. Because the reality is, is that we didn't show this in the Super Value parking lot. And we certainly didn't show this film in the theater. We showed it in church amongst all of us who already had had some sort of experience. If nothing else, it was the experience of watching the film last year. And that was the challenge. This wasn't an outward expression of get your life right with Jesus. It was a reminder to us that we lived in eternal insecurity, never knowing whether or not the God that we served, we had done enough. We had worked enough. We had loved him enough. And so we would scare ourselves once a year. And then we would leave, and on Monday morning, we'd go back to the cafe and sit around the tables and gossip with the other folks. Perhaps we didn't always give the way that we should have. And maybe we didn't run our businesses as ethically as we could have. Because it really wasn't about the condition of our souls. It was about whether or not we behaved correctly. It drove people to the altar, but once life began again, did we really believe what it is that we said we had believed? And the lectionary passages today are unique in that all of them, from the Psalms to the Old Testament passage to the Gospels um, to the New Testament reading, are all about God's wrath today. They're all about big, angry God who is ready to judge, who is ready to take his people on for their sinfulness. You should read through every single one of them today. It's amazing. It's very unusual for them to tie together this way, but they do. They're, there's, just, there's a lot in there about this end time thing, this judgment that's coming. But I want to focus on the passage from Thessalonians today because the Thessalonians were a lot like that culture that I grew up in and perhaps a little bit like our culture today. They were um, a, a newly formed church that had done pretty well for themselves. They were pretty successful. They, they were reaching their people uh, uh, for, for the church. They were bringing people in. But they had some obsessions, particularly an obsession with the end of the age. And Paul, who had planted this church and sent his student Timothy 
to lead them when he was unable to get there, was concerned about them. And so Timothy has reported back to him, and he's writing this letter, this First Thessalonians letter to them as a result of that. They, they've got some misconceptions about um, those who have died and, and gone on and what will happen at the end of the age to them. But there's also some immorality and some ethical challenges in the church of the Thessalonians. But, but for all outward appearances, they're pretty successful and they operate pretty freely. That will change when we get into 2 Thessalonians. But for right now, things are pretty good. They're pretty stable. So let's read from this passage. This is Paul. Uh, He has gone through some correction and some teaching in the first four chapters up to this point to say, you know, here's where you've got some problems, and now let me offer you some correction, and, and here's where you've got some things a little bit wrong, and let me offer some correction. And he's coming to the end of his letter. And he wants to finish off this correction point by then also ending with encouragement. So we're going to walk through some hard stuff today. But at the end, I hope that what we're left with is the same encouragement that Paul wants to leave with the Thessalonians. So let's pick it up here, 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 11. Now concerning how and when all of this will happen, dear brothers and sisters... We don't really need to write to you. You see, Paul's actually telling them they should already know all of the stuff that he said to them because they do know, they have been taught, they've been properly discipled. We don't really need to write to you for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night when people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, that is when disaster will fall on them, as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pains begin, and there will be no escape. But you are not in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters. You won't be surprised when the day of the Lord comes like a thief, for you are children of light. You are sons of the day. We don't belong to darkness and night. So be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love, wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation, For God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ and not to pour out his anger on us. Christ died for us so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. So encourage each other and build each other up just as you are already doing. We are getting ready in two weeks to enter into the Advent season. And Advent is an interesting time for me. It's not a, it's not a season that we celebrated much uh, when I was growing up beyond a calendar that had some um, pretty cheap chocolate in it. Um, I didn't really understand it, but over the last several years, I've, I've began to study and immerse myself in Advent because Advent is not really about Jesus' birth. It's not really about Christmas because that has already occurred. The Advent is an apocalyptic time. 
It's a revealing time. It is the anticipation of the second coming of Jesus. His advent is on its way. And that's what you and I today celebrate because we know we are confident that Jesus has come. And because of that, we anticipate his coming again. That is our advent. But as a, as a, as a part of this, we also have seen the juxtaposition between his coming the first time for salvation and his coming at the end for judgment. And so we often don't look at that second coming in the same way we looked at his coming the first time. That's the season we're getting ready to enter into. The language of the Old Testament is alluded to in this passage where it talks about the great and terrible day of the Lord. This is the judgment of Israel by God. But it's great and terrible because it's great for those who are in line with Christ's coming because it's not something to be feared. It's only terrible if you are insecure about your place, if you are insecure about where you stand with the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord. There will be a judgment, and there will be an end to all things. But while Paul references the language of Christ's coming, what he does is try not to feed the Thessalonians' obsession with the end times, but instead to refocus and retrain their eyes to retrain them to sustenance and perseverance. You see, Paul's admonition to them has less to do with the fact that Christ will return, because that is a fact. It has to do with the weariness of its delay. You see, the Thessalonians are just one generation removed from Christ's ascension to heaven to their church. We are two thousand years removed. Think of that Christmas hymn, a weary world rejoices. In 2020, we are more weary than we have ever been. We are over it. We are done. But what Paul is speaking to the Thessalonians and what he is speaking to us is this, he is going to help us persevere and sustain in this season you see, the Thessalonians misunderstood the purpose of Jesus' return for believers, and because of that, they were racked with uncertainty and fear. And church, today, we are racked with uncertainty and fear, and the God of the universe is coming to us through his servant Paul in this letter that was written so many thousands of years ago to say to us, do not grow weary. I am here to sustain you, you need not be uncertain or fear. Because we are people of the day, people who are awake. We are exactly what Brenton talked about last week in his sermon, that we as Christians are to live our lives differently and not just in the way that we behave. It's not just about the things that we don't do. It's about the things that we do do. It's the way that we exist in our world. It's the way that we think. It's the way that we believe. And it's the way that those thoughts and those beliefs feed out of our hearts and out of our mouths. Of course we'll be ready, Paul says. Don't fear. We should be secure and confident in our salvation. 
Otherwise, we don't actually believe that God is who he said he is. If we have to continue to run to salvation, we are not really believing him. We are subscribing to a system of behavior that pacifies us. But we can be certain of this, that when Christ died, salvation came. And when we accept that and we live our lives as if we believe that that is true, we do not have to fear what is to come. The day of the Lord for the Christian has already arrived. Judgment has come. Jesus' death and resurrection brought us salvation. But anxiety and fear lull us to sleep like those in the night or those who get drunk so that they can sleep and forget what is happening around them. We are people of the day. We are not sons of the night. But anxiety and fear can lull us to sleep. And there is little doubt, my friends, that the present age pressures Christians to abandon their calling, to forget that they are citizens of the age to come. It is easy to want to say, it has been 2,000 years, and we're tired of waiting, and we're not really entirely sure if we're honest with ourselves if you are coming again, because the Thessalonians thought you were coming again, the early Pentecostals at the turn of the last century thought you were coming again, the people of God have, have believed in you coming again, and here we are in this year of such tumult. When are you coming? How long, O oh Lord? Come quickly, Lord Jesus. The prayer of the people of the Old Testament and the prayer of the people of the New Testament. And so around us are all kinds of worldly promises, promises of peace and security. They hearken back to the words of the prophet Jeremiah who said there are people who will cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. And in the here and now, these cries tempt us to believe that we must join hands with the powers of this world to bring about what only the power of Christ can bring. You see, at the time of the Thessalonians, it was the Pax Romana. It was the peace of Rome. It was peace through strength and assimilation. Sorry, these microphones are bad news with earrings and long hair. But the Pax Romana was imposed by the hand of the emperor, assimilate or die. Today, in the Western world, we are lulled by notions of wealth and privilege, of modern ideas of convenience and comfort. It, too, is peace through strength, but economic strength, social strength. Each of these crushes through assimilation. Fear and anxiety mark the church today. I don't care who you look at and what study you, you choose. Pew, which tends to lean on the more secular side, Barna on the more Christian side. Every one of their religion in America surveys report similar data, self-reported data by Christians themselves, that fear is the dominant driver of our lives. Fear of a loss of culture and social power fear of a loss of influence, fear of the other. Theologian and ethicist Stanley Hauerwas said it this way, if you want to silence the church, the way to do it is to give it culture and social power. 
We see this in study after study about the insecurity of pastors and church leaders. Friends, I have said this to you before. I will say it again. You better pray for your pastors. You better pray for those who are out doing the work of the gospel. 75% of evangelical pastors today, according to Barna, report a fear of saying the wrong thing to the wrong group of people because they're afraid of losing their livelihoods and they're afraid of splitting their churches. So it's easier to preach on three steps to financial freedom. It's easier to preach on five steps to personal happiness. It's easier to provide self-help than it is to provide the gospel because they too are living in fear of alienating the people who sit in their congregations so they choose to say very little. When we perceive that our culture and our social power is threatened, we battle more to hang on to those things themselves than what might actually be lost. And what might be lost is our neighbors. You see, because one of the problems that we battle with in this fear is that fear of the other. You see, when Paul is talking about children of the day and children of the night, he's not setting up an us versus them dichotomy. That we of the children of the day are, are in, in contrast to the children of the night because we are opposed to them. They are our enemies. That's not what Paul is saying here. As people of the day, we are set apart not just for ourselves. We are set apart for the people of the night. We have been set apart for our neighbors who are asleep. We have been set apart for those around us who do not yet know. We are to take the gift of salvation as a mandate to take risks for the Lord. And if you want to know what I'm talking about, go look at the Matthew passage for this week, the parable of the talents. Because the parable of the talents is not really about investing resources. The parable of the talents is about being willing to take risks for Jesus. And far too many of us are burying our talents in the ground for fear of offending someone for fear of outrage, for fear of hurting people's feelings, and not the people who need to hear it, by the way, the people who are around us in church. We're so afraid. We're so afraid of one another. We're so afraid of, 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 of hurting somebody's feelings, of offending someone, when the reality is, is that if we would take that talent that we have been given and invest it for the Lord Jesus, he will exponentially return that investment to us. The greatest risk of all, it turns out, is not to risk anything. Not to care deeply or profoundly enough about anything to invest deeply. According to my friend Sam Scalf, who's preaching this message today, he says this, to give your heart away in the process to risk everything. The greatest risk of all, it turns out, is to play it safe. To live lives of caution and prudence. Orthodox theology identifies sin as pride and egotism. However, there's an entirely other lens with which to view the human condition. The ancient church called it sloth. Look up that Matthew passage. Sloth is not just laziness, it's also not caring, not loving, not rejoicing, and not living up to the full potential of our humanity. Playing it safe, investing nothing, digging a hole, and burying the greatest gift the master has given us in the ground our salvation. You see, because the truth of the matter is we're not to live as us versus them. Because the example of Jesus is this, 
when it was them versus him, it was him for them, his enemies. You and I who stood in the streets and cried, crucify him. So if it's us versus them, friends, it's us for them. We are to die for the other because that is what our Savior did for us. But here's the good news. We are also to encourage one another. We're encouraged to one another to stay awake, or as the cool kids say today, stay woke. To stay awake to the reality of God's promise. You see, the best evidence that we as believers have of the assurance of God's forgiveness and salvation is one another. Communities here together, believers around the world who do not share in the privileges that we possess, you want assurance of your salvation? Read about the persecuted church. You want to share in our salvation? Read the voices of the martyrs. That will assure you of your salvation because it is in their testimony that we are encouraged. The promise of Christ's return sustains and builds us in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. You see, at the time of Paul's writing this, things are pretty good for the Thessalonians. But they're about to get really awful. And yet, he will write to them and encourage them again. Because it doesn't matter whether we are living in peace and security or whether we are hiding underground. Our circumstances don't dictate our assurance of our salvation. Whatever our circumstances we find ourselves in, we walk in the light of Christ's salvation set apart not just by how we behave, but by living like we really mean what we say we believe. This is our witness to those in darkness. Because the truth is, we have everything that we need with God's help. With God's help, we have everything that we need for life, health, and happiness. The armor that we're to put on is defensive armor. It's not offensive armor. Because our salvation and our hope is not for us to battle against, but to be assured of our security no matter what the circumstances. So we can be still because the Lord himself will fight for you. We can be still and know that he is God and live and walk out our salvation with confidence and assurance. So I'd like to invite the worship team to come back. We're going to sing another song. But then I want to come back up as we close, and I want to read the final passage outside of the readings today, from 1 Thessalonians 5. Because it's Paul's final word in this season to this church, but it's an encouragement and a challenge. And so I want to read that for us as we come back. But let's worship with our team for a minute. Paul's final instructions to the church at Thessalonica. 
Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, too, to respect those who work hard among you. That's your pastor's friends. Who are over you in the Lord and who admonish you. Hey, reach out this week. Send Sean and Nikki and Brenton a text to tell them how much you respect them and admire them and how much their work matters. That's being obedient to Paul's word. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continuously. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not put out the Spirit's fire. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless in the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And here it is, folks. This is it. Because the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. He will do it. And if that doesn't let you walk out these doors with confidence in who you are and who God has called you to be, let me just repeat it for you one more time. The God who calls is faithful and he will do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you today and every day. I love you, Refuge. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us this week. We believe in community and would love to connect with you. If you have any questions or would like to speak to a pastor, feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at RefugeChurchOC. We hope to see you again soon.